This Dharma talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. Well, good morning, Noble Sangha. Today we'll hear from a longtime practitioner and Sangha member, Rick Vosper, formerly or once of Longmont and now of Arkansas. Rick is going to talk to us about uh, busyness. Title of his talk is So Busy. I will turn it over to you now, Rick. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I always like it when Cliff says, good morning, noble Sangha. That always makes me feel good. So I'd like to talk to you about today about the first Zen koan I was ever exposed to within a practice environment. It's been on my mind lately because it's somewhat related to what we've been doing in the Thursday night group, which Chico Yuen leads. And I thought I might take a chance to explore some of it here. I'd read about other koans, including the sound of one hand and Joshu's move before I started practicing, but this is the first koan I was exposed to in a formal setting. My teacher explained this by saying, we don't use koans as such in the Soto lineage much, but we do have what she called the, the interesting stories that give us something to think about. This one is case 21 in the Book of Serenity, also known as the Book of Composure or the Book of Equanimity. It was first published in 1224, so it's not quite 800 years old. It's been around for a while. It's an exchange between two brothers during China's Tang Dynasty, Yunyan and Dao Wu. So I bet many of you have heard it before, and I know I've had many talks in different Zen environments. Uh, but fortunately, it's brief. It's an exchange between the two brothers. Yunyan is sweeping the ground. His older brother Dawu says, too busy. Yunyan replies, you should know that there is also one who is not busy. And that's the koan. Commentating on this, Roshi Joan Halifax says, in Buddhism, being occupied and preoccupied is not a source of merit. You cannot become enlightened by being busy. In fact, busyness distracts us away from what is happening in the present moment, which we need stillness to perceive. So I learned later that this is only the first part of this con, and we'll come back to the rest of it in a, in a bit. But right now, I want to talk to you about busyness and media culture. When I was growing up, my mother told me that her mother didn't understand how she could do homework while listening to music on the radio. A lot of my friends did their homework with the TV on. And I'm not a good example because I never did any homework, but I was a lousy student. When my sons were teenagers, I went into the younger one's room one evening when he was supposed to be doing his homework. He was playing an online video game and having a conversation with four or five other players on his team through a headset as they're jumping around in this virtual world and shooting bad guys and doing all this stuff. On a different screen, he had a music video playing, both video and music. So when he came to a stopping place in the game, I asked him what he was doing. And he said, can't you see? I'm doing my homework. And uh, he wasn't really, but we both got a laugh out of it. So it was pretty good. We live in a culture that keeps us incredibly busy, more so probably than at any other time in human history. Even when we're not actively doing something, we're saturated with media. I know people who even sleep with TV or internet videos on. So 
that's in their minds 24 and 7, even while they're sleeping. That's busy. There's a phrase for what we do. It's called continuous partial attention. That term comes from a woman named Linda Stone, who's a tech writer and a consultant. And she coined it back in 1998, which was actually before internet culture really took off. She used it to describe a situation where we're continuously dividing our attention into smaller and smaller slices. And then we're spreading those slices over more and more things to be aware of. So continuous partial attention is somewhat like multitasking, but it's more passive and it involves our willingness to be constantly absorbing media because we're afraid we'll miss out on something. I wanna emphasize that point because the fear of missing out is at the root of media culture. It's literally the basis for much commercial advertising. I know this because I worked in the advertising industry as a copywriter off and on for about 30 years. And one of the first things we always looked for when creating an ad was what we call the point of pain. That's the horrible thing, the horrible problem you have that only the client's product or service can solve. So if you think about it, you can start to see how media culture maps to the four noble truths. The first noble truth, the notion of dukkha, things as they are right now are inherently unsatisfactory, is deeply baked into media culture. In fact, it's the whole basis for it. But the media version of the second truth claims that our insatiable desire for things is the solution to the problem instead of the cause of it. To put it another way, our media and in fact our entire culture are about consuming more and more things that society tells us we can't possibly be happy without, which maps to the third and fourth noble truths. According to media culture, there is a solution to the problem of dukkha, and that practice is of consuming more stuff. And the ladder of success that it suggests is going to make us happy is the equivalent of the eightfold path. So media culture mapped to the Four Noble Truths. The problem is it doesn't work because the solution to dukkha cannot be more stuff simply because there is no end to what I want. There's no end to the things we crave and try to cling to. Once you get that next thing, the next big promotion, the next car, the next flavored soda, the next 14 luxurious days and nights on a cruise ship in the Caribbean, there is always another something and another something after that, more and more craving, more and more suffering, more and more stuff without let up. And often the things we consume create problems of their own. Then we have to consume more new things to fix those problems and that creates more problems and so forth. Here's a case in point. There's a popular saying in the bookstore business that the only thing that outsells diet and exercise books is cookbooks. That's a popular saying, but it's not particularly true. I looked it up and what sells more than both exercise and diet books put together is books about improving your mental health. Even as we bought into the big lie that the answer to our problems lies in buying and consuming things, we still know at a very deep level that this strategy doesn't work. The false map of the, of the four noble truths doesn't make us happy. It doesn't cure what ails us. We know this because we're still caught up in the world of samsara. We're still filled with clinging and suffering. So what do we do about it as a culture? That's right. We buy and consume mental health books and blog posts and podcasts and videos that tell us how to get better. It's the perfect non-solution. So the solution to the pain and suffering 
of our lives is more pain and suffering in the form of more stuff. Another piece of that puzzle is what I call disruption culture, which is the basis for continuous partial attention, and it pervades our entire consumer economy. We break away from what's on TV or the radio or YouTube for this important commercial announcement. When we're driving to works, there are billboards advertising still more stuff, and on TV and in movies, product placements are more popular than ever. They disrupt us in a more subtle and subliminal way. So the very act of disruption is an integral part of media experience. It's so much a part of the media experience that we're actually trained not to notice it, but to expect it and to respond to it when it happens. In fact, it's not just the medium of popular entertainment, but the very way that entertainment is structured that helps sell us the lie that consumption will make us happy. Because in these stories, the things that media tells us, everything resolves in the end and the protagonist is right back where they were at the start of the story. Maybe they've learned a lesson or fought off the bad guy or found romance and had true happiness or they've saved the world from the infinity gauntlet but his essential structure is that they put them back where they were when the story started. And if it isn't resolved there, it will be in the sequel. The story format that we've been buying into our entire lives is called three-act structure. It's a staple of television and movies and books and videos. You have setup, you have confrontation, and you have resolution. The term goes back at least as far as Aristotle, who is credited with originating it. In episodic television, where there is one story lasting an entire season, each episode has its own three-act structure, and there's an overarching three-act structure overlying the entire season itself. And three-act works real fine for sitcoms, detective shows, and action movies, but it doesn't work very well as a model for our real life, simply because our real life just doesn't work that way. And at some level, we know it. It doesn't work that way, not for me, not for you, not for anybody. But the fact that we're exposed to it over and over across thousands of hours sets us up to believe that when our lives don't work according to what we hear in the stories, it's our lives that are at fault. There must be something wrong with us because our reality doesn't sync up with the three-act structure we experience in the media. And of course, you know what that means? It means we need another product or service to help fix it. We believe in the story and the structure behind the story because that's what we're exposed to so much of our lives. 463 minutes every day on average. And that's a worldwide estimate, not just for those of us in the USA. And for those of us uh, in the Buddhist faith where we don't absorb quite so much media, you know what that means? It means someone else is picking up our slack and they're doing even more hours per day of media exposure. Let me put that number into context. 463 minutes is seven and a half hours a day, and it works out to more than 200,000 hours of media consumption in an average human lifespan. No wonder we believe it more than the actual evidence in our own lives, and no longer, no wonder we're all too busy as a result. Of course, the desire for things we like or think we might like or think we need or might need also has a flip side, which is our aversion to things we don't like. It works the same way. In fact, it's even easier to address with advertising because the point of pain is so obvious. We have a headache, we take a pill. Maybe the next time we have a headache, we take a different pill, maybe a better pill. But at no time are we encouraged to find out what causes our headaches and to do something about it. So let me tell you a story about aversion and how it acts with the notion of too busy. 
This is the story of Dakota and the cat box. So my wife and I share a trailer with her son and his wife and our granddaughter, Dakota, who is nine and a half. Dakota and I have been cleaning out the cat litter box together since she was about five, which is when the cats came to live with us. So it's been almost another five years and we still clean the cat box together every few days. We have three cats, so the litter box has to be cleaned out pretty often, so there's a lot of opportunities to notice what's going on. We take turns scooping poop and holding the bag the poop gets scooped into. At age five, when it was her turn to scoop, Dakota did everything as slowly as possible because she didn't want to engage with the reality of what she was scooping out of the litter box and into the bag I was holding. When it was her turn to hold the plastic bag, she would stare off into space, look at the ceiling, do anything wanting to be anywhere other than where she was. She also kept trying to put the work off. In fact, it took longer for her to get her shoes on so we could do the cleaning than the actual cleaning did. And I know this because I timed it. I tried to explain it to her. She wasn't having any. She found all kinds of ways to make herself too busy. So I looked for age-appropriate ways to tell Dakota that if she would just engage with the work rather than busying herself with the ways that let her not pay attention to it, the work would go faster and actually be easier than if she tried to avoid it. I didn't use the word aversion with a five-year-old, but that's what it was. Dakota was distracted and too busy to pay attention to the cat box chore. But I noticed that with time and repetition, Dakota has begun to accept the cat box as just another job to be done. And her focus has improved and the process has become a lot less onerous for all of us. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a fun chore, but it's now something we do together and it's a positive experience instead of a negative one. So how did that happen? I'd like to think it happened because I explained so well the need to focus on the job to be done. But maybe it's now that she's nine and a half instead of five. But I can see from how she acts that she's now engaged in that messy, stinky and unpleasant job. And I'm proud of her for that. I made a point of telling her this, but you know what? I was too busy to take my own advice. One of my jobs in the house is to clean the kitchen in the evenings after dinner. I don't like it very much. I'm the kind of person who'd much rather cook than clean up. And I'd taken to listen to music, listening to music with headphones while I did the dishes and put things away and cleaned off the various surfaces. It took me a while to realize it, but I had substituted busyness for single-minded activity. In fact, if you told me I was too busy, I probably would have given Yunyan's reply. You should know there's also one who is not busy. Busy one was me listening to music, which brings us back to the rest of the con. Here it is again in full with commentary by Roshi Joan Halifax. Yunyan is sweeping the ground. His elder brother Dawu says, too busy. Yunyan replies, you should know there's another one who's not busy. But then comes the second part of the koan, the part we don't hear as often. Dao Wu says, oh, do you mean there are two moons? Yunyan then holds up the broom and says, which moon is this? Roshi Jones says, the younger brother Yunyan is sweeping the ground. Maybe there is a taste of busyness in his sleeping. When his brother calls him out for being too busy, Yunyan probably stops sweeping. But he then gives Dao Wu a cliched Zen answer. There is another one who is not busy. This is the kind of answer a new Zen student might give, right out of a bad Zen book. Dao Wu sees this answer for what it is, a Zen dodge, and he doesn't let his brother off the hook. Yunyan, the sweeper, has split the world into two. 
You mean there are two moons challenges Dawu? There is a doer and a non-doer. There's a busy person and a still person. In the koan, Yunyan sees his mistake. He lifts the broom off the floor, stopping his busyness and holds it in front of Dawu. Which moon is this, he asks. Roshi Joan goes on to say, at that moment, Yunyan has sliced through differences, duality and self and other. He understands the reality is not divided into doer and non-doer, doing and non-doing. Reality is just this moment with no broom on the ground, no doer, no deed, no one being busy, nothing to be busy about, and he awakens. Now, personally, I did not awaken. There was no moment when I held up the dripping dish sponge and said, what moon is this? But I did realize that listening to music while doing the dishes was an example of being too busy. So I stopped. And guess what? When I got rid of the music and focused exclusively on the task of cleaning the kitchen, I didn't resent it anymore. It seemed like the fundamental nature of the work had changed, and maybe it did, but mostly what changed was me. I'd still rather cook than clean up, but my attitude is a lot different now. I also realized that too busy didn't come from how fast or slowly I worked or how well I cleaned the dishes and took care of the stove and the countertop, but where my mind was when I was doing it. And that's what made all the difference to me. In the Thursday night group led by Chikyo Yuen, we just finished The Five Invitations by Frank Ostaseski. The subtitle is Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And that's exactly what the book is about. Even though some of you from the Thursday group I can see are here this morning, I'm going to still talk about the five invitations for a while. That's both because I really like the book and Chikyo did such a good job of commenting on it, and because a lot of it maps well onto the notion of being too busy. The first invitation is simple. Don't wait. In the context of too busy, this highlights how easy it is to put things off simply because we're so busy. But when we look at the things we're busy with and compare them with our goals and priorities, two things become apparent. First, there's no time to waste on busyness. And second, there's a lot more time available for what matters than we thought there was. The second invitation is welcome everything, push away nothing. And the third is be, bring your whole self to the experience. To me, these are two sides of the same coin. If we're pushing something away, resisting it, or practicing aversion, we can't bring our whole selves to what we're trying to accomplish. At the same time, bringing our whole self, warts and all, to what we're doing also means welcoming everything, including our aversions. And when we let go of all that stuff, we stop pushing it away, and it's much easier to become calm and unclouded and focused and just deal with the task at hand. When Dakota was scooping out the litter box, or I was listening to music to a avoid the reality of cleaning the kitchen. Both of us were pushing away the reality of what we were doing and creating busyness to avoid bringing our whole selves to the experience. Once we changed our way of thinking and stopped pushing away what we had been avoiding, things got a lot better for both of us. So the second and third invitations work together to keep us calm and present. The fourth invitation is find a place to rest in the middle of things. This is interesting because I think it speaks to what Yunyan was trying to get at with his answer, there is one who is not busy. When we find a place to rest in the middle of all that's going on, we can be very active without being busy. It's the difference between moving and being in a hurry. I 
As I said before, busyness has nothing to do with how fast we're working or how much we do. Likewise, it doesn't even necessarily mean focusing entirely on just one thing. The Olympics are coming up next week. So let's use an example of an athlete who is completely in the zone, especially in a sport like soccer or volleyball or fencing, which are three of my favorites. The athletes are running physically at red line. They're going as hard as they can. They're also processing huge amounts of information about all the things going on around them, what the opponent is doing, how they respond to this situation or that situation. They're responding to changing conditions instantly and doing all these incredibly complicated physical things without getting caught up in any of it. The in the zone athlete seems to be very busy and definitely expending huge amounts of energy, yet they're not too busy. They're completely focused and calm at the same time. They're doing these remarkable things. They have found the place of rest in the middle of things, even as they are performing amazing feats that are beyond the reach of most human beings. I wonder if Yunyan was thinking of something like this, like being in the zone when he stopped his sleeping and responded to Dao Wu. The fifth and final invitation is cultivate don't know mind. Here's what Ostaseski has to say about that. He says, when our minds are made up, it narrows our vision, obscures our ability to see the whole picture and limits our capacity to act. And then this beautiful sentence, we only see what our knowing allows us to see. Don't know mind, he says, represents something else entirely. It is beyond knowing and not knowing. It is off the charts of our conventional ideas about knowledge and ignorance. I don't know about you, but much of the monkey mind chatter going on with me is things I have an opinion about. That guy who cut me off on the freeway was a jerk. I should have given him a piece of my mind. I would have said this or that. And then he would have probably said that or this. And then I would have said this other thing to him. Well, that's six opinions in one brief train of thought. And I have no way of knowing whether any of them is valid. When we get rid of these opinions and practice don't know mind, whether in meditation or in our daily lives, it takes a lot of the too busy out of what we're doing. Ostaseski ends this chapter of the five invitations with this. Don't know mind is an invitation to enter life with fresh eyes, to empty our minds and open our hearts. To me, that sounds like the very opposite of being too busy. Kosho Uchiyama Roshi it's a beautiful expression for this, and I've told you about it before, and we're going to hear it again. Opening the hand of thought. Here's how he put it. I use this expression, opening the hand of thought, to explain as graphically as possible the connection between human beings and the process of thinking. Thinking means to be grasping or holding on to something with our brain's conceptual hand. But if we open it, if we don't conceive, what is in our hand falls away. So opening the hand of thought means letting go of all our ideas and opinions about things and just experiencing them directly, without narration, without concepts, without knowing. And so it is too for creating action without busyness. And there's something wonderful that comes from it. This may be an obvious point by now, but just as we can't be too busy, we can be too busy with our actions, we can often be too busy just within our own minds. Too busy mind is another name for what we call monkey mind. It's all those thoughts chasing each other around, playing tag on the playground of our consciousness. And like so many things in our tradition, it all comes back to what happens on the little black cushion. Sitting zazen is one antidote to the busyness of our lives or of our lives. 
When we first come to the cushion, there are thoughts flying all over, but gradually our mind starts to become clear and settled, and our thoughts become less frequent, less chaotic, and less connected to each other. That's true whether we're talking about a single session of Zazen or the effects of Zazen done over years or even a lifetime of practice. As our practice deepens, so does our focus, and that's true over both the short and long term. But maintaining that focus requires upkeep and long-term commitment. Barbara Rhodes, who is Zen master Sung Yang, was a student of Zen master Sung Song in the Quan Om tradition. And here's what she says about that. She says, we have a saying in the Korean Zen tradition, big shout, big echo, small shout, small echo. The big shout doesn't come from good looks, money, or a prominent place in the community. It comes from authentic practice. The problem with this world is that we don't usually recognize our habit force, which is controlling us a good part of the time. When you meditate long enough, you can let go of your pesky backseat driver. I love that expression, backseat driver. You can let go of your tainted views and see what's actually going on. Then your innate intuition, honesty, and compassion will surface. When you do a long retreat, the practice is the same day after day. The daily routine of chanting, bowing, and sitting helps clear your mind. And as you practice, you begin to see how your backseat driver has been controlling you. Seeing your habitual thoughts, you begin to ask, what's really happening here? Just looking, just listening, your mind is at rest and yet alert. You're able to drop preconceived ideas, you feel clearer, and with that clarity comes the desire to help others. Which brings us back to a second pretty obvious point that when we take care of the busyness in our minds, the busyness in our actions will tend to take care of itself. So that's the place we have to start, back on the black cushion. But in Zen, it nearly always is. We start on the black cushion, and it seems that that's where we end up time after time. You've been listening to a Dharma Talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.